My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, September 19th, 2012, also known as iOS 6 Day. <laughs> yeah, incurable Apple guy, sorry. Had to throw that in. And loving the new iOS, by the way. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Once a week, we do our light edition of Fighting for the Faith. Today is our light edition for this week, and we're going to continue with the series of lectures presented by uh, uh, the Reverend Ron Hodel on the book of Colossians. And it, I've... Personally, I think they're just fantastic lectures, and part of, a major part of discernment is knowing your Bible in depth. So an in-depth study like this is a, is a key component of, of, well, of biblical discernment, being able to detect true doctrine versus false doctrine, what the Bible teaches as opposed to what the Bible don't be teaching, uh, understanding it in depth, being taught it from somebody who's Rightly handling God's word is a critical compiece, uh, <clears throat> component. <laughs> I, I, I love it when I the uh, there's a disconnect between what I'm saying in my head and what comes out of my mouth. <sighs> Creeping decrepitude. It's just so wonderful. Anyway, so what we're going to do today, because uh, lecture number five, by the way, in the series is really short. And so what I have, I've made an executive decision. That's what I do around here. I, I make executive decisions. I've decided that we're going to do uh, lectures five and six today, although six is longer. So what we're going to do is I'm going to kick it over to Pastor Hodel. He's going to present uh, Colossians, uh, his uh, fifth lecture on the book of Colossians. We'll take a break 
And then when we come back, we'll dive into lecture number six. So there, you know, there'll be a fairly uh, good-sized uh, fighting for the faith today. And all of this again is to uh, basically help you grow deeper in your understanding of what Scripture teaches, especially since the uh, Book of Colossians was written against heresy. Anyway, so with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Here is uh, the Pastor Ron Hodel of Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California, in his fifth lecture on the book of Colossians. We're, we're in Colossians chapter 1. Um, in the bulletin, it said that uh, there was one class and it was going to be held over here. So if you're here for Luther's large catechism, um, it's that way. Um, otherwise, uh, we're going to be looking at Colossians in here. Uh, chapter 1, I'm going to read uh, 15 through 20, and then we'll make some comments. We started this section a little bit uh, last time. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Okay, just some some uh, words we left off with uh, the the picture of by him, in him, through him, for him. In verse sixteen, by him all things were created, heaven and earth, and and all things created by him, and in him. Verse seventeen, all things hold together. So if creation is in Christ, then then it has a it, it has a relationship with Christ, whether it knows it or not. And then at the end of 16, all things were created through him and for him. Not for him as if it was something for him to play with, but for him to redeem, for him to restore back to its original state. So what's all that mean for us? By him, in him, and for him. Could could call it the cosmology of, of, uh, of, of Colossians. Paul isn't so much interested in describing how the universe functions. He's more inter- interested in presenting his readers with a way of viewing the universe. And so what Paul is doing here is he's lining out a way, or really the way, for us to make sense and understand everything that's going on out there in the world. And the first thing Paul points out is the universe is totally dependent upon Christ. It was created by Christ, and for Christ's sake, God holds the whole thing together. He upholds it. He sustains it. So the universe is dependent upon Christ. And that would then mean that the universe is not the same thing as God. The universe isn't God. Um, Neither is it eternal. Um, Nor is the universe even, and this is important for the the uh, Colossians and the heresy that was being spread there, neither is it inherently evil, which is the opposite of what the Gnostics were teaching, that matter is completely evil and only only the Spirit of God is, is, is good. Um, 
nothing new to say the universe is God and everything else is God. Uh, when, when we were up in Northern California, we would go to a, a great little breakfast uh, place. Um, and right next to it was a children's bookstore, and this was in Berkeley. Um, the People's Republic of Berkeley. I have three kids born in the People's Republic of Berkeley, um, and uh, um, and uh, we we bought a we bought a book just to. It was on who is God, and finally it ends. Um, if God is everywhere and God is everything, then the tree is God and the earth is God and and the stars are God and you are God. Um, it was just everything is God. Everything is eternal. Um, and I left it in my office. Um, I should have brought that book. But the, the universe is not eternal and the universe is not God. But neither is the universe inherently evil. To sustain his creation, God utilizes various powers. There are personal powers. There are impersonal powers. And I think Paul is getting to that when he says visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, which he also created. Um, Now, of course, some of that has rebelled. Uh, Some of these powers have rebelled against the creator, the whole demonic side. Um, And some of the powers are personal, like like the demonic, and others are impersonal. I just kind of put down entropy, maybe. Um, But that which has rebelled against God is doing everything it can to subvert and to pervert and even destroy the structures that God has established to to make our life in community bearable. And, you know, it doesn't take much to look out over society and see things that are destroying the structures of, of society, see what's destroying the structures of, of human sexuality, what's destroying the structures of marriage, what's destroying the structure for um, proper respect for authority. Um, and and it's fr- a frightening kind of scary thing to, to look out and to see and to be experiencing. And I hate to be a prophet, but I I, I speak as a prophet. I think it's going to get worse. Uh, can a prophet say I think? Um, but uh, even though the demonic is at work in creation, the principalities and powers of this present age have been defeated and conquered by Christ. Um, and so the ultimate judgment of that which is demonic is sealed. It's sealed. Um, the time that it's going to be able to ravage heaven and earth is limited. Um, so if you're a follower of this cosmic Christ, there are some blessings and there are some benefits from seeing the universe the way Paul sees it, seeing the universe through through the eyes of, of Christ, if you will. And the first thing to see is that the universe isn't the ultimate thing. All those things that we work so hard for, all those things we struggle to gain in this life, all those things we try to ensure ourselves for or against, they're not the ultimate thing. The universe isn't God. The universe isn't life. Rather, all that we have is simply gift from the God who who created it, the God who is life. So first, the universe and all that we have is not the ultimate thing. And second, when you see the corruption that's going on in the universe, as a Christian, you can find a peace that passes all understanding, as Scripture says, as our liturgy reiterates. 
Um, you can find the confidence to, f- to, to face all the tribulations and all of the trials that come to you in this life because as a Christian you realize that though it's all been corrupted, um, it's all been judged. And uh, that which is doing the corrupting is ultimately under the lordship of Jesus. And he is risen and he is reigning and he is returning in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, that imagery, winter is breaking. Spring is coming. The winter is thawing. Um, the other thing to know is that it can't be fixed. You know, this is a broken world. And I'm not saying don't do the best we can with what we've got and, and try to fix things as best we can, whether it's politically or, you know, however, however we try to fix things in this life. But ultimately, it can't be fixed. It has to be, if you will, killed and raised again to a new life, a new creation. And that's what God has promised to do. Um, and so instead of facing the future and everything that's out there with fear, um, you can face it even in the face of suffering, even in the face of all the disintegration that you see going on. You can face it with confidence. You can face the future or you can face the present knowing that you have a hope in a future, but it's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, he's the one who's eternal. Dieterding uh, made this comment. He said, All things were created with a view to Christ's redemptive work, which would restore creation after its fall and corruption to that very good status in which the Creator had first made it. So God had created the world perfect. You read through Genesis chapter 1, and you hear it over and over again, and it is good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. Um, And although it's not good now, um, it's not his intention to leave this fallen creation in its fallen state. Time is headed somewhere. Not a cyclical thing, as if uh, we talked about that earlier, where it was a hopeless thing. It was just going to keep on happening. But time is headed toward a goal. And the goal is the redemption that Christ accomplishes. And so if creation is the way things ought to be, and things aren't that way now, Christ's salvation, you could say Christ's return, eschatology, is the solution to the contradiction between the way things are, fallen, and the way things ought to be, and that's the new creation. And it's Christ's forgiveness that has remedied it all. It's Christ's forgiveness that has remedied the corruption that has happened in this in this world and in our lives. It's something we know now by faith. You can't see it. Um, but it is something that the saved will experience through Christ in the resurrection, when we will know and see with our eyes, um, no longer with eyes dimmed, with, with, uh, through a glass dimly, as Paul says, but face to face, see the... The, the goodness of the original creation restored. John in, in Revelation uh, said, Revelation 21, verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne, it's Christ, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, 
write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. So for us, it's a now, but not yet kind of thing. It's as good as now. You can bank on it. And that's what we do. And yet it's not quite yet, is it? We still live in this broken, fallen world, but it is now. The kingdom ours remaineth. Okay, so back to the text. Um, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And invisible there means more than just, uh, it's more than meets the eye. Uh, The Nicene Creed. Um, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And not just the, you know, the wind or the, the, the air that you can't see, but Paul is going to mention spiritual creatures as well. He's going to get to the angels. And he has to get to the angels because, as you can guess, the false teachers were encouraging people to call upon the angels and to worship the angels. So Paul here has to assert the fact that Christ is Lord and has supremacy even over all of the invisible things, including angels. We don't worship them. We worship the one God. So by, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, commentators go a couple of different ways there. Some say those are, are um, give them kind of a, 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 a personal uh, flavor to them, um, like the angels or fallen beings or otherwise. Um, and other commentators say, no, it's impersonal forces, uh, uh, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Uh, it's government in general, uh, the things that give structure to the universe. Um, God is, is, uh, has created all these things, visible, invisible, uh, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. It's, it's probably not, it's probably best not to draw a hard line. This is, oh, this is, this is personal things. This is the angels. Or, no, no, this is just government things. Um, Dieterding says, the fallen uh, personal evil is going to do its best with that impersonal stuff to simply do its best to move people away from trusting Christ to trusting anything else. Anything else. Satan doesn't care if you trust wonderful good things as long as you don't trust Christ. Verse 17, and he, Christ, is before all things. And we talked about this a little bit before. Before in terms of both time, that the Lord existed before all creation, and before in terms of preeminence, that Christ has authority over all creation. He is before all things supreme, and he is before all things preeminent, which takes us to the next verse, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Up to this point, um, Paul has been focusing on Christ being the creator. And that's completely in the face of the heresies that have been shot through this church in, in, uh, in Colossae. Um, here, he uh, is going to start focusing on the redemption of fallen creation. 
Um, and the first thing Paul says is, and he, Christ, is the head. Now, head can simply mean you know leader. You look in the Old Testament and you find it can be uh, many different forms of, of leaders, varieties of leaders take that um, title of head. But here Paul makes it clear that Jesus is the head. And Jesus gives that office and he gives that calling over to no one else. Um, head describes Jesus' relationship to the church. Um, in a sense, talking like this is uh, kind of unique to Paul in the New Testament. He also talked to the Ephesians about this, um, and we heard that in our in our second lesson this morning. But Paul has to address headship because very quickly, headship is going to become an issue in the church. Um, it doesn't take long for early church bishops to start vying for authority and vying for um, priority. Oh, they piously say, well, we are, we are equals. We are, we are 100% equals, but I am the first among equals. Okay, just to let you know where you stand. Um, and then, of course, in the Middle Ages, uh, you had bishops, especially the Bishop of Rome, asserting his power over, or in his authority at least, over over political and, and national leaders. And then on the flip side to that, you had the political leaders like, well, you got Henry VIII, who wanted to be the head of the church in his own realm um, for whatever various reasons. Uh and uh, if you said otherwise, you were executed for high treason. Um, Luther wrote in the, in the small called articles, he wrote this. Uh, the Pope is not, according to divine law or God's word, the head of all Christendom. This name belongs, only, uh, belongs to one only, whose name is Jesus Christ. He's the head. And Paul makes that clear. Of course, we're all intimately connected to our heads. And so, um, head is a good word. Um, it infers an intimate relationship with the one who has redeemed us. It's a relationship that began the day the pastor poured water over you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It began for Raymond a little over an hour ago. Um, and it's a relationship that gets sustained through word and sacrament. It's not a magic act, baptism. and It's, it's a relationship that begins there and gets sustained in word and sacrament. And he is head of the body. He is the head of the body, the church. Greek word there is ekklesia. Um, we get the word ecclesiastical from that. If you look in the in the church um, catalogs, you've got ecclesiastical arts. So church art is what it is. Um, uh, ecclesiastical. Um, in the, the secular Greeks could use the word. Um, it simply meant public assembly. Um, but when it's used in the New Testament, it means local congregation or, or it can describe the, the church at large, the body of Christ. Um, in, the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint, Ecclesia uh, refers to Israel, God's chosen people. 
And so it follows the ecclesia in the new, in the new Testament would refer to God's chosen people. Those who are in Christ. All right. Um, And so it's a continuation of Israel as the people of God. We're now the people of God. Um, And it's an assembly that's open to anyone who embraces Christ as Savior and Lord through faith in him. Um, And that's going to be big uh, because that's a hard thing for, for, you know, that, that early the early church to, to grab hold of. Um, it's kind of ho-hum to us that the church is, is uh, I, I forget how the, how the politically incorrect song, um, whether yellow, black, or white, they're precious in his sight, um, uh, you know. Um, uh, but, but if you grew up in a Jewish world where Gentiles were, if not the enemy, they were a defiling presence among God's holy people. It's a long way from there to confessing one holy Christian apostolic church with a profound diversity. Now that's a long way to come. And Christ is the head of the body, uh, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus was the firstborn of all creation, of every creature. We saw that earlier. And now Paul calls him the firstborn um, from the dead. Um, we, we talked about first, uh, the instance of being first. Uh, um, if you think about it, there were others who were raised before Jesus, weren't there? Ooh. Got Lazarus, who was raised before Jesus. You got Jairus's daughter, Jairus's daughter, who got raised before Jesus. You got the the widow of Nain, whose son was raised before Jesus. Of course, they've all since died as well. Um, But uh, Christ is the firstborn from the dead who remained alive. He is the firstborn, also in the sense of title. Firstborn is his title. He is Lord over. Over life and over death. Um, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God. We talked about this a little bit before too. Because remember we, we, we said that the very beginning there is kind of the overture. And you get a lot of the themes come up in the very beginning. And so here fullness of God. We talked about that in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. Um, fullness of God states implicitly what is implied explicitly what is implied the eternal God who has no body, uh, no material essence came to dwell in the body of the child, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, the totality of God with all of his divine attributes begin to dwell in Christ at the moment of his conception by the Holy spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That's an incredible mystery um, that the invisible God becomes a corporal and visible man. Um, and that this person has two natures. He's fully God and he's fully man. And that God would even choose to do this for the sake of his fallen creation. Um, no God worth his salt would do this kind of thing, you know? Um what was the, the you, there was the, the line in the Patton movie, uh, don't die for your country, let the other guy die for his. 
You know, uh, that's kind of the that's you know that that that's the way I do it. You know, but that he's going to die for for the fallen creation. He's going to choose to do this, and the state in which he begins to do this was in the incarnation, um, at his conception. So in that sense, the all-powerful, all-eternal God is, uh, has now even hallowed or made holy the wombs, the womb of his mother and the wombs of all mothers, um, which, as I started to think about that, is probably one of the most despised, dangerous places in all of the United States to live, is in the womb of a mother. You know, you think it's bad going to, uh, to, you know, kind of the drug infested, uh, barrios of Northern Mexico, <laughs> try the womb of a mother in the United States. Um, all right. To get a handle on that. I mean, to think about the eternal God doing this um kind of what would it take to take the entire universe you know and then just collapse it into one person you know that's nothing compared to taking the, the eternal god collapsing his deity if you will into the the person of our lord and savior jesus christ um it's not filling a universe full of things, filling man. It's God's fullness dwelling in Jesus of Nazareth. Next time you, at Christmas we sing Away in a Manger, um, think about that little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. Um, and you think that the little Lord Jesus who is asleep on the hay is the Lord God who is at the same time asleep on the hay, holding the entire universe in his hands. You know? Um, So Jesus shows us what we can't see. Jesus holds in his conceived, born, and resurrected body what the universe cannot contain. In him one sees God. In him one meets God in his fullness. Verse 20. And now all things are redeemed through him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. Well, of course, the world needs reconciling. Sin has alienated all of creation from the creator. And Christ's work is to reconcile all things. He brings everything back into its proper order. He brings everything back into a a harmonious relationship with God the creator like the creation was before, before the fall. And so when Scripture talks about reconciliation and restoration, the work that Christ does, it's often depicted in Scripture as a new creation language. Um, that language uh, speaks of creation being restored to its original, brought back into a right relationship uh, with, with God. And so he reconciles all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, that's all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. Um, So Jesus' death makes peace between God and humankind possible. Um, Objectively, because of the death of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross, God is at peace with you. 
You know, it's one thing. Um, I remember uh, reading a little narrative on what Luther did on hospital calls. Um, and he'd drive up to the hospital and, and uh, pay his uh, parking because they had paid parking even back then. Um, no. And, um, and he would talk with the people. And there'd be kind of the small talk that goes on. And then there was, the, there was a, a, a question that he would ask. Um, do, you, do you know that your God is at peace with you through Christ? Now, it kind of be easy to flip it the other way. Are you at peace with God? Yeah, well, sure, yeah, I'm at peace with God. And, yeah. Um, what's really more important is that God is at peace with you. All right? Um, and in Christ, even in spite of our sins, God is at peace with us because Christ's death has worked that. You can know that. Um, God is objectively at peace with you. Um, we experience that through faith. Um, but we know it uh, because he has said so. And so Christ's death is also the victory over everything that, that opposes us. Dieterding says, The Lord of hosts is a God of order who arranged the elements of his good creation and rearranges the elements of the fallen creation so that it again bears his divine imprint and is blessed with the goodness of Christ. And then Paul mentions he's at peace through the blood of his cross. Now, you usually didn't die on the cross from blood loss. Right? You died, the, the way crucifixion works, uh, the way it worked, was um, you were to suffocate to death. Um, you had to be able to pull yourself up to breathe. You didn't necessarily have to be nailed there. You could be tied there, but tied in such a way that if you sag down like this, you can't breathe. But if you have to pull yourself up, that's the only way you can breathe. But how often, how long can you do that with your back rubbing against the, 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 the cross or the, the, the beam? Um, and, uh, um, so you, you, and, and then crucifixions were designed to last for three full days. It was, it was, it was a deterrent to crime. Um, you walk by that, you hate your neighbor. You're thinking, you know, I, I'm going to kill him. I'm just going to kill him. His dog barked all night. Um, and you walk by that cross for three days in a row on your way to work, seeing somebody suffering. You say, I'm not going to kill him because I don't want that. All right. Um, uh, so, so when Christ died on the cross, he died very quickly. Um, uh, he died of a broken heart. Um, some have made the point he probably had a, a major, massive heart attack. Um, but, uh, um, and he shed his blood there, for they nailed him there. And then it's John who says, and the soldier came by to check. And that's why they broke the legs, by the way. If you break the legs, then you can't pull yourself up, right? I mean, you can't push. You've got to push with your legs. You've got to pull with your arms. Well, your leg's broken. You can't, can't pull yourself up, and you suffocate quickly. Um, they came to Christ. The soldier could see he was dead already. No need to break the legs. He's, he's dead. And they stuck the sword in his, his side and outflow blood uh, mixed with water. Um, so John is the one who tells us about blood here, um, which testifies to his death. And so blood is a, it's a big deal. 
is a big deal because it takes us back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. If you take a look at at Leviticus chapter 16, which is about the atonement, and then chapter 17, which follows right after it, the point of those two chapters, uh, well, one of the one of the main points of those two chapters is there is a right use for blood and there is a wrong use for blood. And there's only one right use for blood, and that is atonement. That is redemption. Um, uh, it's the blood of the sacrificed animal that is offered in payment for for sin. Um, and that secures your forgiveness. And it worked because God attached his promise that it would work to it. It worked because that blood ultimately points forward to the blood that Christ shed on Calvary's cross. And so in a similar way, Christ's death is the payment for the sins of the entire world to earn the forgiveness of the entire world once and for all and reconciliation and peace that Paul describes, it's an accomplished fact. God is at peace with you through the blood of Christ's cross. But Paul had to emphasize Christ's preeminence there. I'll just reread that that uh, section, and and um, next week we'll 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 get into section uh, the next section twenty one through twenty nine. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together, whether they know it or not. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The next section we're going to get to is 21 through 29, and I'm going to read that for us now, and then we'll, then we'll uh, jump into it next week. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Well, we're going to have to look at that, huh? Rejoice in suffering. Um, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Hope of glory. Him we proclaim, 
warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The Lord be with you. Thank you. Okay, that's the end of lecture number five. We're going to take a break and uh, pay some bills when we come back. We'll be listening to uh, lecture number six in its entirety. Don't want to miss it. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook. Go to facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hey, do you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst, holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical store. Sound the alarm, you're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. Ah. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no. And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You know, so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spotting Chester. You have so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies, they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. Uh, Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in Biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and Biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 100
150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net, situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to suffer from church envy. Yeah, especially if your pastor isn't preaching God's word in depth, like many of the good pastors we feature here at Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. Uh, click on one of them and uh, and support us. Uh, real simple. Uh, the Join Our Crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And if you'd like to specify the amount, you click on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46. Zero three eight. Okay, here is lecture number six by uh, Pastor Ron Hodel on uh, his uh, series of lectures on the book of Colossians. Here we go. Okay, we are in Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to be uh, starting at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might that we may present everyone mature in Christ for this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me <clears throat> so far our text um, verse 24 as we look at uh, the verse 24 a few things pop out at us now I rejoice in my suffering he says rejoicing in suffering that that's going to make us think a little bit um, for your sake 
and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions hmm. for the sake of his body, that is, the church. When Paul's writing this, he's writing it not as a missionary out making a journey and, and on so forth, um, and he stopped at a hotel and he decides to write a letter. Paul is a political prisoner in Rome at this point. He's deprived of his freedom. He's suffering hardship for the sake of his faithful proclamation to Christ. Now, there was a very easy way out of his hardship, an incredibly simple way to get out of all of this. And that was simply to renounce the gospel. You know, then he's free from all of this, but he won't do it and he can't do it. He's compelled by Christ. Um, now, at this point, his physical uh, circumstances, uh, the physical circumstances of his imprisonment are probably not real harsh. Um, he's kind of under house arrest, if you will, but still he's not a free man. He still can't move around freely and carry out his apostolic labors like he uh, so much enjoys and like he's done in the past. Um, and if you can't do that kind of thing, um, that's suffering. That's hardship for Paul that he can't get out and preach the gospel. That's hardship. You know what kind of a hardship it is for you when you can't do one of the things that you really like to do? Um, everybody would look at it and say, well, that's not a hardship. You're not suffering. Well, it's suffering because you can't do what you want to do. You know. Um, so what's Paul mean when he says, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church? Well, might be uh, best to start off with what he's not saying. And what he's not saying is that there's something in Christ's redeeming work um, that has not yet been, been completed. Uh, that Christ went most of the way, but he didn't go all the way. And so Paul needs to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions so that uh, it can all be done. Um, we talked about uh, you have to interpret Scripture by Scripture. And, um, and uh, there's no extra lifting that you have to do because Christ hasn't done, hasn't done the whole thing. Um, the first thing to note is, Everywhere it talks about Christ's afflictions and Christ's suffering uh, in, in the scriptures, the picture is that it is, it is absolutely, totally complete. There's nothing to add to Christ's suffering on Calvary's cross for the forgiveness of our sins. When, when Jesus, uh, uh, hanging on the cross, said his last words, to tell us die, it means it is finished. It is paid in full. It's the it's the, uh, the the word or the mark that would be marked on your bill. Once you've finally paid your entire bill, it would be marked to telestai, paid in full. And so when Jesus says to telestai, that means the sins of the world are paid for in full. There's nothing owed on the bill. He's done it all. So his death paid. And his descent into hell wasn't for further suffering. We confess that every Sunday uh, when we do the Apostles' Creed that he descended into hell. But it wasn't for further suffering. Um, it was a, a proclamation of victory in the, face of, in the face of the defeated enemy. In his resurrected body, the sign of his victory, the death couldn't hold him. 
he proclaims that victory to those spirits who were in prison. Um, he, if you will, marched right into the into the, the capital city of the enemy and proclaimed victory. So nowhere also does it say in the New Testament that that the redemptive work of Jesus was affliction. Um, so the passage can't mean that we have to add something to Jesus' work because his work is not quite completed. He didn't go all, quite all the way. That would fly in the face of, of all the New Testament. So the afflictions that Paul mentions here are those things that all Christians suffer because we are his body. Um, all Christians suffer with Christ. Paul wrote to the, to the Romans. He said, And if we are children, then heirs, heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order, in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then he wrote along also to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3, he said, Indeed, all who desire to, lead, to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So there's going to be suffering. So when we think about the suffering of Christians, one thing that comes to mind about the, the afflictions of Christ is the suffering of, of fellow Christians. Paul says, if one member is suffering, then the rest are suffering. If one member is rejoicing, the rest of the body is rejoicing. And so uh, in part, you could think about this. Paul's suffering helps the Colossians bear up under their suffering. And you know what kind of encouragement that gives to you if you see somebody suffering and and they're they're and then you're going through maybe something that's not nearly as big and you you know they're staying faithful and you gain strength from their being faithful. I I, I tell the story. I don't mean to embarrass the Trents anywhere, but um, uh, that uh, when when Tim's dad after he had that stroke. Um, uh, and it took him a long time to get back to church, but finally he got to church. And I don't know how early Ollie and your mom had to get him up um, and for him to make it to church uh, every single Sunday. Um, uh, how difficult to work that is. Well, I just walk in. It's so easy. And just for him to get up and out of bed was a chore. And so, um, you know, the strength that you gain from seeing somebody faithful to our Lord getting up out of bed and making it to church, you say, you know what? That gives me strength. I can do that too. Um, So suffering is what we can expect as followers of Jesus in the world. If you think about it, Jesus' enemies hated him. They, They rejected him. They falsely accused him. And even after his crucifixion, they weren't satisfied. Um, and in fact, Jesus' enemies aren't satisfied even to this day. And so the direct, the, the hatred that's directed at Christ, uh, is going to be directed now at his disciples, at his body. It only makes sense. And Jesus knew this was going to happen. So he, so he told us ahead of time that it was going to happen. Um, now this relationship with Jesus Christ was begun for each of us in the waters of our baptism, just like it began for Carter this morning earlier. And I think we have four baptisms of babies in a row. This, you know, started last week. It ends in a couple of weeks. Just a marvelous thing. Um, uh, your baptismal incorporation into Christ is a wonderful thing, but it does mean that it's going to bring you some suffering. Um, I know flippantly people say, I, I got to get my kid done. 
My kid done, you know. Hmm. What, uh, help me understand. No, we need to get the kid baptized. And, uh, you know, there's a part of me that says, do you really want to do that? I mean, um, do you know what you're doing here? Um, you're marking your kid for death. You know, I don't exactly say it that way because I know that's going to, I want to, I want to keep the door open, you know, but it, it does remind me of the, of the Gary Larson cartoons. Remember the far side cartoons and there's two bears standing there and the one bear has, has a bullseye on his behind. And, uh, the other bear says to him, bummer, of, bummer of a birthmark, you know, <laughs> target. But really, baptism marks you. Receive the sign of the Holy Cross both upon your forehead and above your heart to mark you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. Baptism makes you a marked person. Um, it marks you as Christ's own. Um, it marks you as one who has drowned and died in the waters of baptism, been connected to Christ's death, and then been raised to life again. So it's marked you as one who's uh, been born again through water and the word. And it has marked you also as one of Satan's prime targets. So you really want to do that to your kid? Mark him as one of Satan's prime targets? Well, yes, I do. And now we also need to give to my that child um, all the blessings and benefits that we can that, that the church has to give through the sharing of the word. And so we baptize, and then we teach, and we deliver the, the, the forgiveness of sins in the Lord's Supper, and the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes in the waters of baptism, as Vicar spoke about this morning, um, our Pentecosts, to, to give us strength and... and um, uh, So as uh, Paul Dieterding says in his commentary on Colossians, thus by way of baptism, Christ so closely identified himself with his followers that they share both in the forgiveness and salvation he acquired by his death and also in the sufferings he endured. So in a sense, then, you share in his sufferings. Um, And Paul believes that and he figures that he is suffering for the sake, he's suffering for the sake of, of, of the gospel. He says to the Philippians, even though I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So he is, he's, he's gladly accepts suffering for the sake of the gospel, and he understands that it is going to bring benefit to the church. Um, uh, Paul knows that his suffering is on behalf, as he says, on behalf of Christ's body, which is the church. So the deficiency, if there is any deficiency, the deficiency in the affliction isn't on the part of Christ. Oh, that's all complete. It's on the part of the Colossians. And uh, if you think about it, in a sense, Paul is, is carrying the load that the Colossians should have been carrying. They'd started to waver. They've started to um, to be enticed by the heresy that was, was being uh, uh, promoted in their midst. And they started then to neglect on their part the things that would cause one to suffer. 
And so Paul figures that he needs to pick up the slack. He needs to write them a letter. Sometimes there's a lot of work to write a letter. I imagine it's a lot of work to write a letter, even if you're inspired by God to write a letter. Um, so just the afflictions of having to put this forward for the Colossians and, and uh, the, the trials and tribulations that it gave to him, that he knows that some of God's people are being challenged and enticed by a heresy. Uh, the affliction, and he talks about that a little bit later on, that, that comes to him from that. Um, but Paul could rejoice because he knew that it was benefiting the church. And in a practical way, um, you know, if you can get Paul in prison, and Paul can, can uh, if you will, um, draw fire himself, it might be that those who aren't quite on the radar don't take the fire. And so Paul taking fire in Rome for the faith allows the Colossians under the, under the cover there to keep preaching the gospel quietly, steadily, faithfully, and proclaiming Jesus to those who had never heard. So Paul's doing that. He's drawing fire. Um, and he's, he's being an encouragement to his, to his, to his people. Um, during the, during the, uh, the Thursday Bible class, um, uh, we are just finishing up uh, a novel by the name of uh, by the by, by the name of Hammer of God, and it's by Bo Gerst, who is or was the Swedish uh, bishop of the Lutheran Church there in Sweden in the last century. And there was an interesting line in there. Um, let me just read it and then just make a comment on it. The very suffering became the gate of heaven. The very suffering became the gate of heaven, and the cross. That instrument of torture became a sign of victory and a spring of mercy. Walking with him is going to glory through suffering itself and seeing the springs rush forth everywhere through the valley of weeping and the deserts of thistles. Anywhere where someone is suffering undeservedly in his name, new springs are welling up from the depth of his atonement. Um, what's kind of being illustrated there is the theology of the cross, that thing which brings great suffering and terrible torture, the cross, is in reality a spring of living water bubbling up to eternal life to all who believe. Um, So that which brings death also brings life. Now, the theology of glory would say you've got to get away from all of this suffering and, and enjoy the victory that you have in Jesus. But the victory that you have in Jesus only comes through death and resurrection. The only victory that comes in Jesus is into death and then out into glory. You can't bypass the cross to glory. All right? And so um, whenever you're suffering in the valley of the shadow of death, as one of God's people, in a sense, a spring of living water is welling up through you. Um, think about it this way. Um, when God and his angels see you suffering for the sake of Christ and the cross, um, they're saying, there's an embassy of God right there. Um, you know what that's like when you are in a situation or a crowd and you feel like you're completely all alone. As a Christian, you feel all alone. 
And then you find out that somebody else is a Christian. Somebody else is, is in the faith. And it just, it's like, it's like you have, it's like you have come to a spring of living water. Ha! Huh, at least somebody else believes. You know? Um, uh, Scott Keith, uh, my good friend and good friend of the congregation, uh, makes the comment because uh, he's going to school, uh, doing his PhD in England. And, 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 uh, he says, you know what? Um, he says, it is such a wilderness over there that if I find anybody that actually believes that Christ bodily rose from the dead, I'm in fellowship with him. <laughs> no, my goodness, a fellow believer. <laughs> um, we don't quite have that here yet. Um, but what, what a blessing it is to find somebody else who is a spring of living water. And what, what a blessing it is for somebody else to find you as a spring of living water in the middle of a very dreary desert, even though the desert is green and we have sprinkler systems and palm trees and, you know, um, on and so forth. So baptism, as uh, uh, Paul Dieterding says, as baptism connects us to the death and resurrection of Jesus for our salvation and makes us members of his body, so also it connects us to the sufferings of Christ, which we experience for the sake of our faith, our service, and our witness. So he suffers for the sake of, of his body, that is the church, Paul says, of which I became a minister. Now we talked about ministry earlier in, in uh, verse 1, and so I won't go into that. But he says, um, for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. The word stewardship there is oikonomia. Um, and you hear the word economy in that. Uh, it's management. Um, God has given to Paul management um, for the sake of the Colossians. Um, and in a sense, when you are in management, you kind of know the overall Story, You know, the history of, of how the whole thing is supposed to work. And so Paul uses that word when he describes the overall plan of God um, as he guides history. He says, Paul says to the, to the Ephesians in chapter 1, as the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So God has revealed to him and through his word to all of us, um, his, if you will, his oikonomia, his plan. Um, his management, uh, his stewardship of, 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 of this world. So it's one thing to know that there's a management plan which God is guiding in history. It's another thing to be included in the plan, to kind of have the inside scoop. And that's what we as Christ's body have. We have, if you will, kind of the inside information. I, every once in a while, I, I, I want to share with you just uh, different things that I read. And uh, from Dr. John Kleinig, I don't know, have, have, who has read this book? Um, Grace Upon Grace, Spirituality for Today. Excellent book. Very devotional, but very excellent book. Dr. Kleinig is an uh, Australian Lutheran, comes up here and lectures at our seminaries uh, every once in a while. Um, just if you ever get a chance to hear Dr. Kleinig, um, please take the opportunity. We're going we're gonna to try and do our best to coordinate with others uh, across the country and try to get him for Faith Academy. Um, but that would be worth taking the entire week off. Uh, from whatever job you've got, um, and uh, come and, and hear Dr. Kleinig. But I wanted to just read, uh, and I printed it off for you, page 153 and following. talks about friends of the king. You, you ha- you're on the inside. 
if you will. It's rather lengthy, but uh, please. Imagine that you received a written invitation from the President of the United States to join his administration. What's more, if you accept his offer, you could choose the department you wish to run. You would be a member of the President's Cabinet and have direct access to the President and all the people that governed the United States. You would not only have have a say in your area of responsibility, but would play a part in the administration of this land and the distribution of its resources. Think of all the good that you could do for your local community and the people all over the world. It would indeed be a great privilege to serve in this capacity. Yet most of us would feel underqualified and ill-equipped to accept the invitation. No matter how honored we would feel by the President's confidence in us, and our abilities, most of us would be so daunted by the task that we would rather reluctantly decline the offer. We would only agree to take up the task if we received a high level of assistance and support from the President and his advisors. In our contemporary democracies, department secretaries are close to and assist the President. In the ancient world, the person who was closest to the king, his personal confidant and advisor, was called the friend of the king. This, too, was the case for the kings of Israel. That was the role of Hushai with David and Zabad with Solomon. In the Old Testament, Abraham occupies that place with the Lord. The story of his intercession for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah shows how he acted in that role. Abraham used his access to God to plead for God's mercy on these sinful cities. In John 15, verses 13 through 15, Jesus tells us that he has appointed us and all his disciples as his friends. Um, Let me just read that section, John 15. John 15:13 reads Greater love has no man than this that someone lay down his life for his friends You are my friends if you do what I command you No longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you So in John 15, Jesus tells us that he has appointed us and all his disciples as his friends. We are therefore far more privileged than Abraham. Each of us works with Jesus, the royal son of God, as his advisors, his personal confidants. We have no authority and power by ourselves. We depend on him for our position and our work. In John 15, 1 through 12, Jesus shows our dependence on him for everything by comparing himself to a vine and us to the branches of a vine. We receive everything from him. We achieve nothing apart from our union with him. He therefore does not just appoint us to work with him in the administration of God's kingdom. He stands with us and gives us his full backing. In a royal bureaucracy, the servants of the king did what they were told. They were not consulted on policy formation or included in decision-making. 
Servants had to carry out the decrees of the king, whether they understood them or not. A royal civil servant did not know his master's business. The friends of the king, however, differed from servants in two ways. They were involved in discussion about decisions, and so had some say in what was decided. Therefore, they knew their master's business, and they knew why the decision was made, and how it fitted in with the policy of the king. As a result, they could speak for the king, and act on his behalf. They did not just work for the king, they worked with him, and so shared in his rule. As disciples of Christ, the heavenly king, we are like friends of the king. Through his word, we know what he is doing and why. He has taught us everything he has learned from his heavenly father, so we can join with him in doing his father's work. Since he briefs us on his father's policy, his good and gracious will for us and his whole creation, we know our master's business and work with him. We not merely work for Jesus by carrying out his commands. We work with him by passing on the love that we have received from the Father through him. In John 15, verse 16, Jesus connects that royal work with prayer in his name to God the Father. When we pray in his name, we interact with the will of God the Father and counsel how to implement his policy in our lives and in the lives of those around us. By our prayers, we become involved with God and His Son in the administration of His grace here on earth. We can have our say because we hear His Word and know His business. The better we know His Word and understand His will, the better our counsel will be as we pray. Since Jesus backs us and confides in us, God the Father takes our Word into account and listens to us. Through prayer, we work and reign with Christ here on earth. We are, if you like, all members of Christ's royal cabinet, ministers in his holy administration, heavenly administration. Our prayer is part of our work in Christ's heavenly administration of his Father's realm. Through our union with Jesus, we have access to the Father's presence and have become co-workers with him. We are privy to his deliberations and share in his decisions. Since we are the friends of Christ who know his heavenly father's policy and his will and method of working, we can work with him. He has chosen us to make our recommendations to him about the implementation of his policy here on earth. Through our prayers, we work with him in the administration of God's grace. Now, none of this is possible if everything in the universe has already been set in cement. That is not the view of the Bible. It clearly rejects the notion of a closed universe. It is true that God does not change his gracious purpose to save the human race, but this does not mean that he has already fixed the blueprint for the course of human history in every person's life. Moses dared to pray because he believed that he could change the fate of his people by changing God's decision to destroy them, and he succeeded in doing just that. In fact, the Bible frequently speaks of God changing his mind in keeping with his unchanging grace. Surely the good and gracious will of God is done without our prayer, Luther says. Yet in prayer we have access to the mind of God. The outcome of present events will be different if we pray according to God's word. When we pray for others, we may therefore be doing far more 
for the well-being of the human race than all the leaders of the world with their political activity. Pretty powerful few paragraphs there. Um, Paul being a minister, a steward of that which God has given to him, and us then being stewards of that which God has given to us. And because he has baptized us into his life, death, and resurrection, he no longer calls you a servant. Jump here, jump there. He calls you friend. And he has shared all that we need to know with us in his, in his word. And that's exactly what Paul said. What is the stewardship plan? What is the management plan? What is the economy of this whole thing? It is to make the word of God fully known. The word of God meaning Holy Scripture and the word of God who is Christ. It's a both and. Because only in Scripture will you get to know, only in the word will you get to know the word. Only in Scripture will you get to know Christ. All right? And so the only way to make this fully known then is to teach it. Not bits and pieces of it, not just the parts that we like, um, but to teach the whole thing. As Jesus says in Matthew 28 verse verse, uh, 19, to keep watch over all that I have commanded, all that I have taught you. Um, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to, sometimes I think some of the versions say, obey all the, um, obey. Um, but the best way to translate that is to keep watch over all that I have delivered to you. Like to illustrate it this way, if you go on vacation, you ask somebody to keep watch over my house. All right. Um, so you come back home from vacation and you walk up and, and the, you know, put your key in the front door and open the front door and the inside of your house is gutted. You have no furniture left. Your TVs are gone. Your computers are gone. Your dishes are gone. Everything's gone. You say, I told you to keep watch over my house. And you say, well, I did keep watch over your house. It's just fine. Look at there. Your house is just fine. Well, it's all, everything. Keep watch over all that I have taught you, Jesus says, because it's all important. And in this way, he makes the word of God fully known. That is in contrast to the false teachers who claim that God's earlier revelation was deficient and that now you need to know more. I think that's the ploy of that woman in Acts chapter 16 where she's a, she's, she has a demonic spirit um, and she is following Paul and Silas in Philippi. And uh, so she has a demonic spirit. She's known to be able to, to tell the futures and on and so forth. She's a slave girl. And she's going around after Paul and Silas saying, listen to these men. They're telling you uh, the truth. They're telling you a way to be saved. Now, that is strange for a demonically possessed person to say about, about somebody preaching the gospel. Listen to them. Um, but, of course, Satan knows Paul and Silas are going to move on to the next town, and she's going to be say, able to say, Now, what they told you was great, but it was, it was deficient. And now let me give you the rest of the story. And thus Paul Harvey was born. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. No, I like Paul Harvey. Um, uh, so, 
to make the word of God fully known and to get the word of God fully out to the world. And of course, that all ties back to one verse before this about the universality of uh, the universal scope of the gospel that it goes to everyone. It's not just to a limited few. Okay, verse 26. Um, well, let me uh, just, uh, we'll read a little bit earlier. Um, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Okay? To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. If you think about a good mystery, if you, re- if you read a good mystery, you get a variety of facts as the story goes along, um, but you're trying to figure out how all these things kind of fit together. And, and it's not until you get to the very end that you start to see how everything comes together. And all those little facts that seem to be very disjointed and seem to have nothing to do with the story are actually very important facts that have everything to do with the story. And so after you know the outcome, then you can go back and reread the story and you start to see these, these connections all popping up all over the place. Well, if you read the Old Testament, you could say that, uh, you know, it's just, seems to be kind of disjointed, or at least you know, it seems to be. You think, okay, well, there's a story about the seed of a woman crushing a serpent's head, and there's a rock in the desert that uh, when it's struck uh, at, at God's command, water flows from it, and then there's the whole layout of the tabernacle and the temple, and that you're not allowed to worship anywhere but the temple. That seems to be kind of just just thrown in there. You know, I only want to be worshipped at the temple, Okay. Um, uh, you got a bronze serpent on a pole and you got the kings of Israel and you got the wisdom of Solomon and you got the suffering servant of Isaiah but once you read the New Testament with uh, and Christ in his ministry has, has revealed what is going on uh, you start to see meaning in all of that the seed of the woman is Christ that is going to crush Satan's head um, the, the rock that's struck in the desert um, is the rock of Christ our Lord who is struck on Calvary's cross and his water flows out to bring water to us, the waters of, of, of healing and life. And the whole layout of the temple, we went through that in, in, um, in Lent. And that you can only worship at the temple seems to be rather restrictive. And then Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's worship only in Jesus. It's all tied to that. Um, The bronze serpent on the pole that people gazed on when they had been bit by serpents. And God said, uh, gaze upon that serpent lifted up on the pole and you will live. And so Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. That everyone who gazes on him in faith will live. God attached a promise to a thing, a serpent in the wilderness, a tree in the garden. 
Think of that tree in the garden. There was nothing wrong with the tree in the, uh, of the, uh, the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil, was there? It was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable to make one wise. There was nothing wrong with the tree. It wasn't a poison apple hanging up there, or poison pomegranate, like what someone said. Um, the tree had one thing. The, the only problem with the tree is it had a promise connected to it. Eat of it, and you'll die. They ate of it, and they died. Um, so the significance of much of the Old Testament that was hidden until the ministry of Christ, uh, uh, it's all revealed uh, uh, through Christ, its significance. And so we're privileged to be able to look at this after its revelation. Now we can read the Old Testament, and we can discover the meanings of all those things. So Paul tells us this mystery has been revealed to his saints, those who are holy before God by way of the forgiveness of their sins through faith in Christ. Verse 27, To uh, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. So the mystery isn't just that Christ is coming into the world. It's also about Christ personally coming to us. Um, and where does he personally come to us? Well, I, uh, it, it's not through our feelings, um, which Uncle Scrooge could interpret to be a quiver in your liver or a result of an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato, those cause feelings. Um, No, he comes to us through word and sacrament. And the you here is plural, um, stressing Christ dwelling with his believers, Christ among you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We've already talked about hope, um, the, 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 the picture of, of time for, the, for, for many in Paul's day was that time was just going nowhere. It was just, just headed straight out and things would just happen and happen and happen. Um, and, then, and then it would come back around again and it would happen and happen and happen. It was cyclical and there's no end to this. And maybe you know how that is when you're going through some bad stuff in your life and there's no end to it. Right? You feel very hopeless after a while. It's awfully nice to know that it's heading somewhere, that there's going to be a conclusion to the whole thing. And so the hope that we have is that there is a conclusion to the whole thing. It's our death and our resurrection in Christ. Um, So time is headed somewhere for us. It's headed through suffering, yes, to glory. Um. And, of course, the word glory there is rich in meaning as well. Um, it can mean uh, God himself. Uh, that's how God designates himself sometimes in the Old Testament, glory. Um, it's the image of God sometimes in Scripture. It can describe the, the splendor of eternal life. Um, but that is, that, that is our great hope, the hope of glory. Time is heading somewhere for you. It's going through a lot of different sufferings right now but it's headed to glory. And it's not just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles as well. Paul always saw himself as the apostle to the Gentiles. 
um, that he would go out to those who, um, who were not Jews. Paul goes on and says in verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Him we proclaim. It's all about Christ. There's a lot more that can be said, of course. But what's important is, as Dr. Rosenblatt says um, that it's important to keep the emphasis on the right syllable. All right? Really important thing to remember when it comes to conversations with other Christians. Everything that's, you know, many things that are being said, are, are they're all there, but where's the emphasis going to be? And for Paul, him we proclaimed. I chose to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, Paul says to the Corinthians. Christ is the focus. It's all about Christ. Um, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Some make a connection, especially Lutherans, to uh, warning, the picture of warning there, putting the emphasis on admonition. Um, uh, uh, and then teaching includes all that uh, Christ has or all that God has proclaimed in Holy Scripture, the whole biblical message. And so taken together, perhaps you could say, this is preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's teaching law and, and gospel, warning and teaching. It's the entire, it's the outline of the Christian message here. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Um, so you kind of say, well, am I mature in Christ? Um, remember what Christ looks at as and, and points out as mature in Christ. Um, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a, a really wise old man. No, calling to him a little child. A, a toddler. A pideon. In the Greek, he set him in the midst of them. So unless you turn and become like little children, you'll never be, uh, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Mature in Christ is to to trust like little ones who trust. Little ones just believe you. They just believe you. You get more mature in the in the ways of the world, and then I start to question you. Where'd you get those facts? Um, little ones, they just believe you. This is the body of Christ. It's the body of Christ. No questions. Little ones believe. Um, so, mature is trusting like the little ones. Or it can be translated perfect or complete. Now, that's not a state you get yourself into by struggling. You only become mature by virtue of a saving relationship in Christ. And only then can we be what God wants us to be. And he restores to us that perfection that was lost in the fall. We can't restore that to ourselves. Vicar commented on that earlier today in the sermon. Just, just go ahead. Stop sinning. 
Yeah, make yourself, make yourself mature in Christ. Just stop sinning. Stop those evil thoughts. Just quit lusting. It's yeah, just, just like that. Try it. it. We can't. We have to be brought to that. Um, and we're declared to be perfect now. In heaven, it'll be ours perfectly. But he declares us to be just right now. Verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Or maybe a more literal translation would be his working that is working within me. In other words, God is the source of all the strength that goes on in Paul's ministry. He knows he has no strength to do this. Um, it's all strength that comes from God. It's, it's his energy. He's the one who provides the power for faith. He's the one who brings salvation. He's the one who gives us that ability even to live out our vocations. Well, let's stop here. and Next week we'll, we'll pick up at uh, chapter 2. The Lord be with you. Thank you. Amen. So, what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or subscribe to me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross, for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.